Welcome to the Dietetics Digest podcast with your host and dietitian, me, Aaron Boyson. Dietetics Digest is a podcast created and produced by dietitians for dietitians. We interview dietitians from around the world to talk about their journey and their groundbreaking work. This podcast will help inspire you and others to become the best dietitian possible. Thank you, Laura, for joining us on um, this episode of the Dietetics Digest podcast. Great to have you with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to do it. Thank you for dedicating your morning time, 8am to be precise, uh, to (laughs) record the podcast. So I wanted to start off with a little bit of a questions around yourself. I thought I'd um, possibly ask you to maybe introduce yourself and a little bit of your sort of background. So I invited Laura on the podcast because she is one of very few dietitians within the UK that has been dysphagia trained. And I previously had other dietitians on the podcast, such as Sam Francis um, from Bradford Teaching Hospital that extended his role in the placement of nasogastric feeding tubes for patients on a stroke ward. And I think it's, it's very interesting to see how dietitians are extending roles to change patient care or improve patient care. And this is another great example of how it's just to help extend a role and help to provide better patient care. And usually that better patient care, quote unquote, becomes a lot faster um, due to sort of friction and changing of professionals and extra referrals being sent. So Laura, if you just introduce yourself, who you are, a little bit of your background. So my name is Laura Clark. Um, I'm a clinical specialist dietitian and I'm also a dysphagia practitioner. Um, so I currently work in Doncaster. So I work for the Rotherham, Doncaster and South Humber NHS Trust. I've been there for six years. Um, so I graduated in 2015 and I've worked there ever since. I obviously do know what's going off everywhere else, but I'm, I'm quite Doncaster led um, and I've been there right from the start. So so Doncaster born and bred then? Yes, <laughs> yes. And it's not, I live in Barnsley, so it's obviously all very South Yorkshire based um, and they're, they're doing a lot of work kind of um, as a South Yorkshire integrated care system. So it all kind of fits together. It's quite nice. If I ask you what like what triggered the motivation to become sort of dysphagia trained and be able to provide these assessments to patients, what what triggered this within the the, the setting that you work in? Yeah, so kind of how did it all start? Yeah, how did it all start? Well, I guess so. I obviously wasn't involved right at the very start, so I kind of I had to go back to my supervisor and say, "How did you kind of how did I end up here?" Um, so in Ardash, um, our speech therapy team cover a really large geographical area which is Doncaster because it does span out quite far Um, and the input into lots of different teams as well so like the stroke team so what they wanted to do is they wanted to look to see who else actually works closely in those teams that they could look at kind of extended roles so at the minute in Ardash we also have a community matron who's dysphagia trained um, and she works in with progressive neurological conditions. So she now basically manages all of those patients. So that could be things like motor neuron disease um, and Huntington disease. So it's kind of that patient group gets to just see, they get to see the nurse for the nurse a bit and then they get to see um, her for the dysphagia part as well. So I think it was some kind of like service manager meeting um, because basically what happens is they have places on the course, the dysphagia course, every year. So they were, they were deciding, right, okay, so which new band five speech therapists are starting with the trust? Is there any current speech therapists that are band fives that have not had the training yet? Is there any nurses? Who needs to basically go on the course? So my manager, being the manager that she is, she's very, um, she flies the flag for dietetics. She's like, why don't we have a dietitian? Let's, you know, this would be a really good idea. And what I found out after is that they actually, I thought they wanted to have a dietitian, as I've just said, but they said, we actually chose you basically because of my skills at the time, what they thought I could I could do. So because it's a, a lot around kind of research, questioning practice, using lots of evidence-based, formulating hypotheses and then challenging the hypotheses and changing them, um, how swallow, because obviously swallow management, it, it impacts on so many other things, as we know. Um, they thought this is right for Laura, basically. Um, so they were like, Laura, would you like to do it? And I want me being me. I said, oh, yeah, that's fine. I'll do that. I've no idea what it, what it entailed. Um, but yeah, I always think any opportunity that you get, I thought this is kind of one in a lifetime opportunity. Um, so I'm going to do it. And, yeah, and that's, that's basically the backstory. Yeah, and you're a pioneer for changing practice <laughs> and adjusting it slightly. And I think it helps us all, I think, obviously helping other people blend roles and even when we talk about malnutrition management i think there's definitely a case to make sure it's it's everyone's problem not just dietitians problem and have 
eyes and ears everywhere and Definitely. even sort of basic advice before a sort of a dietitian can get there can be provided by lots of other healthcare professionals to support patients early. But I wanted to circle back on one thing you said, they chose you. Now, what skills did they think or do you have that made you suitable for the role? So what sort of skills should a dietitian be, if they're interested in this area, what sort of skills did they think would be useful for you? I think you have to question. You have to question a lot of things and say, well, could it be that or could it be this? You have to be very confident in asking for help and asking for advice and knowing when you've gone wrong. So taking constructive criticism, which I know can be quite difficult because a lot of the times I did get it wrong to start with because it, 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 there's a lot of grey areas um, when it comes to swallowing in dietetics, obviously. And I, I'm saying this very broadly. Um, it's quite objective. So, you know, if you think anthropometry, it's numbers, it's weight, biochemistry, it's numbers, it's it's all quite factual and it's there. And things like with your clinical stuff, you know, if you've got your skin and your bowels and your diet history, even then we're counting calories, that kind of thing. It's all very numbers-based, whereas dysphagia is not, essentially. It's kind of you do your bedside assessment and you can't, because you haven't got the x-ray goggles to sit and see what's going on, you have to basically think, it could be that or it could be that, it could be that. So you've got to be quite um, flexible and, and, yeah, and just basically be comfortable with making um, a clinical decision on, on what you think is the is the best thing to do from what you've seen. So you're just talking about the differences between, say, sort of dietetic practice and um, swallow assessments. So, yeah, so as I said, the, the dietetics um, can be quite objective, quite numbers-based, but the swallowing is very subjective. Um, and like I said, you've got different hypotheses, you've got to be able to change them, you've got to be able to work with them um, and use lots of other kind of information a bit like we do in dietetics still, but yeah, it's, it's a completely different um, skills and approach to what dietetics would be. So when we think about this training, how did it become, how did it start? What training did you need to get and what are you trained to be able to do? Um, it was back in 2019. I think mm. COVID has kind of blurred all the years together. I tried to think, when did I actually do it? So it was 2019. Um, and something I did learn, which was quite interesting, is I thought speech therapists would do dysphagia as part of their undergraduate study, but they don't. It's just the communication um, and everything else that they do. So the dysphagia is actually a master's course. So it's postgraduate. And even speech therapists, once they've done their undergraduate study, also then have to go on to do the dysphagia, the master's course. So that's basically what I did. Um, so I did it at Sheffield Hound University and it was five days face-to-face then. I don't know what they'll be doing now. And it's 30 credits uh, master's module. So the title is The Assessment and Management of Adults with Dysphagia. So when I did it, there were lots of pre-reading, as there always is. And at the time, I was thinking, oh, my gosh, this is going to blow my mind. This is, you know, it's it, it were all like, it were all very different to what, to what I know. So you went on the course, um, you did the five-day course, and then after that, you had to have 80 hours um, working within dysphagia management, and that would be with a trained speech therapist or with a trained another dysphagia practitioner. Um, and at least 50 of those hours has to be with patients. And obviously, as you're going along, you supervise your assessors. So it's a bit like being a student dietitian because you're there and, you know, your supervisor's watching you, giving you feedback and that kind of thing. Um, so we did that, and then I had to do two case studies. So there was an acute dysphagia case study and a progressive dysphagia case study. So the acute one would be, for example, somebody who, who might be nil by mouth on a neuro rehab ward, who you uh, kind of you're trying to improve the swallowing ability. And the progressive dysphagia one might be somebody, for example, in a care home um, that's got dementia, so their swallow is not likely to improve. So you have to kind of prove how you can go up and then go down in kind of um, the textures and the levels. Um, and obviously evidence in any exercises and things like that that they might you might recommend so I did that and then once you pass those two I had to do a critical review um so it was around the ethical dilemmas in dysphagia management so obviously I tried to make it quite relevant to to me and my role so I did a lot around risk feeding um so yeah so it was risk feeding it was enteral feeding in dementia thickened fluids and texture modified diets because I thought they're the most kind of relevant to me so I had to kind of just debate the um, the literature around what is risk feeding um kind of the evidence-based ventral feeding and dementia do thickened fluids actually improve what does it improve um does it improve kind of the reduce the risk of aspiration but then you've also got quality of life to consider um and things like that so Essentially, once I'd done all that, and it did take me a while because I am a learner who takes longer. I mean, it took me 13 months to pass my driving test. So I'm definitely not a quick learner. I take my time. So I know that I'm really confident 
uh, with what I'm doing. So I think it took me over a year, I would say, to get all of that in because at the same time, I'm obviously doing my dietetic job as well, mm-hmm. trying to balance that. So, uh, but luckily, I were able to do quite a lot of it in work time. I was quite well supported. Um, and I think that's because I'm, I think I would like to say I'm quite good at my time management. So I were able to kind of balance everything. Um, so once I'd been all, and obviously there were supervisor assessments as well. So once all that had been signed off, so I have got the same competency as a speech and language therapist in terms of the dysphagia training. So there is actually a, it's an interprofessional dysphagia framework. And I would be classed probably as a foundation dysphagia practitioner. So there's things like specialists and consultant um, and things like that. So, um, so yeah, I was on the course that I did, I was the only dietitian, but there were also some nurses and some physios as well. So it was nice to see kind of other AHPs as well. It was really good. What has been the reception around the idea of other, other healthcare professionals learning how to assess patient swallow and things? What's been the perception and stuff because i think sometimes it can appear a bit like taking someone's role or taking over someone's job or an area where that particular healthcare professional has been an expert in for ages How, yeah what's been the perception of that um what i received is it's been nothing but great so the speech therapists I think, well, actually, one of them does call me the honorary speech and language therapist. Um, she's, you know, the, they are really grateful because I can obviously pick up referrals, so it reduces their workload. So at the moment in Doncaster, the referrals increased, I think, over a, pay, a course of three years, it increased from like in the hundreds to the 900s. So a massive jump. And obviously staffing, it takes a while, doesn't it, to get funding and to get the right staffing in place. So mm-hmm. a lot of them are heavily dysphagia referrals. So I think it helps them. It's helped them massively. Also, because I'm quite well known in my dietetic role and I do a lot of work out in community with the other healthcare professionals, they've actually been able to come to me and say, Laura, we've got this question. And it's a bit like I'm a way into the speech therapy team. So I'll obviously help them if I can from a dysphagia perspective, but I can also um, kind of be that point of contact for both teams, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So other healthcare professionals have been kind of really grateful and said, Laura, please, can you, can you just assess this patient for me? <laughs> so obviously it all has to go through the right channels, but I think it's, it's basically, um, it's having a voice for the speech therapy team as well. So other professionals have been, um, yeah, they've, they've just thought it were great. I think it does. I do worry when I go into places and I try and explain what I do because, well, I don't know about you and I'm sure everybody else who, who's listening will think this they confuse the speech therapy team with the dietitians and they kind of might call me a speech therapist and might call them dietitians mm-hmm. so when I go in and say I do both they're a bit like oh all right okay so um that's the only thing I would say is it can be a little bit confusing um for staff who are kind of not working with you all the time for example like care home staff something like that yeah I can imagine it is confusing because they already get us confused re- regardless let alone <laughs> if one of the one 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 dietitian's roaming around doing swallow assessments and stuff. That's that's going yes. to be extra confusing to people. Yeah, it definitely, definitely. But hopefully, if there's more of us eventually, it'll just become a kind of a team effort, really. So, yeah. So, what's your the use of a better phrase? What's your current skill level in swallow assessments? Because obviously, I know there's different sorts of levels, and obviously, you've got the bedside assessments that a lot of people do, but also instrumental assessments like video fluoroscopy or the fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallow assessments and things like that so what's what's your current skill level and what's what level do you plan to get to is that is there any progression in the swallow in this role or do you feel like it it fits quite well as it is what how is it working i would say because of, so i work predominantly in um, community so that's patients in their own homes and um, care homes and on our site we have got some uh, rehabilitation wards so we've got acute mental health wards but we've also got some rehabilitation wards so my skill level is obviously at the moment we don't have fees sadly it would be really nice to have um, fees kind of because that's obviously mobile you can take that round the video fluoroscopy is done at the acute hospital so obviously I, I don't work for them. There is two different trusts in Doncaster, so they do that. So at the minute it is just bedside assessments, mm-hmm. but obviously we would refer on to video fluoroscopy if we needed to. So yeah, it, it is just it's just the bedside assessments. I think because of the type of role it is, and because I'm a dietitian, I'm obviously I'm not going to start going doing VFs and things like that. I think I will stick to what I know, which is which is just out in community. If we did get fees, that would be great. But yeah, I think I'll I'll probably just expand on the conditions that I see so I started off with care home patients 
um, because from a dysphagia point of view, they weren't simple, but they were much easier than kind of a stroke patient, for example, mm-hmm. who's coming, who's nil by mouth. So it was much easier because they're already well established on a diet and fluid. They were just having problems with that diet and fluid. So it were kind of easier to manage. So I started doing that, which I found quite helpful. And obviously having 24-hour care, there's always somebody there to watch them. So you've got that extra safety blanket when you are giving your advice. So you can say to them, you know, if you have any problems, stop, revert back to the previous recommendations, give me a ring. So you've got that. When you're first starting out, it can be quite daunting because, you know, you are advising what texture that person can or can't eat safely. Then I've started working on the neurorehabilitation ward, which is um, on site, which is really good because a lot of those, I mean, at one point we had six uh, patients who had feeding tubes and they were on various kind of some were nil by mouth, some were on all trials, some were on uh, established on diet and fluids, but obviously maybe on like level four, level five. Um, so I were able to work with the speech therapist there and practice my skills doing that. Um, and then now I've just gone on to people in their own homes, but who are feeding tubes. So I'm trying to keep it really relevant to role for me as a dietitian. So I can actually give patients, they only have to see one therapist and they get the kind of both advice at the same time. So I'm kind of graduating and it's more around my confidence, really. Um, the team have kind of said, you know, you can do it. You know, you know when to ask for help, you know when to ask for support. So just give it a go. Um, but me being me, I'm quite nervous and want to make sure I'm fully confident before I actually dive into something. So, yeah, so I feel like I'll probably, I'll, I'll make sure that it works for the patient. So whatever's going to benefit the patient most and the service, that's probably where I'll stay working. So it's not about where I kind of I want to increase my skill level in terms of maybe doing something more complex like VF things like that it's just more around making it work for the service and patients yeah so very sort of service focused patient focused and um focusing on the area where the the blending of roles is actually advantageous yeah so for example a speech and language can do video fluoroscopy but what what say um a speech and language therapist wouldn't be able to do is also assess someone's swallow in their home Mm-hmm. And then also adjust their feeding regime accordingly. Um, so doing both of those and actually providing that that mixture of care, but maybe not the more more instrumental assessments that um, a speech and language therapist would do. And I think that's a that's a brilliant way to ensure that patients get a sort of timely service and um, also reduce the amount of professionals yeah. they need to see, how many visits they get a day, and things like that. And how how much extra time do your um, visits take? Is it like a doubled up visit, or is it? So because um, I'm trying to, so obviously the care homes, we've got a really robust uh, malnutrition universal screening tool pathway for the care homes in Doncaster. They're very managed, very much managed within the care home itself. So when I was seeing the care home patients, they wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily be seeing them for a dietetic reason. But obviously that's because I were, I were kind of first starting out. Then when I would see um, the patients in the neuro rehab setting, I guess it kind of, I spend more time doing the dysphagia like kind of hands-on time because a lot of the dietetics will be kind of reading through the notes checking what they've been having checking the tolerance so I think hands-on time I think I actually do less dietetic hands-on than I do um, swallowing I tend to do more of that so I won't say, say it takes me too much longer I think because I'm quite confident in the role I'm working with in dietetics that might only take me like 10 minutes it's the swallowing that takes me a lot longer because that's kind of what's new to me. Mm-hmm. So I think because I'm in a position from a dietetic perspective and as well because what we tend to our kind of specialisms as such in dietetics is nutrition support and it's home mental feeding, like the complex gastro and head and neck are seen at the acute trust. So from a dietetic perspective, it is, it's much, I'm, I'm quite skilled in that area. So it's not, it doesn't take me as long. So it is, it's just the dysphagia that takes the time, really. So How does your documentation, kind of where, do you, where do you put the swallow assessment? Is it like a separate assessment or do you put a separate note in? Or let's, I'm just thinking like logistically, do you put it in, <laughs> which section do you put it in? Um, yes, so there's, we use electronic records. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got system one for dietetics. I go onto the speech therapy unit and I type my notes in there. So I've got kind of a bit of a pro forma that I use. Um, a bit like we've got as A to E. I've got my own one for dysphagia that I've developed, obviously, with the speech therapy team. So I have to document everything in there. So then what I would do in the dietetic notes is I'd write, please see my speech therapy notes for details. But basically, these are the recommendations. This is what we're doing. Because as dietitians, well, at the time, I just think, well, I just need to know what they can and can't have. I don't really want to know the ins and outs of what kind of what happened when they coughed and this kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it's just a brief um, kind of note in the dietetic ones. Brilliant. and. 
I want to bring you back to when you mentioned about the critical evaluation you had to do for your master's and sort of bringing sort of your dietetic knowledge and your dysphagia training together. Was there anything that you, that sort of, as you were writing those evaluations and thinking about those things in regards to patients you care for, was mm-hmm. there anything that maybe questioned your thought process, you thought more about a particular area, or you thought that having that swallow training um, helped you understand something a lot more? When I, well, when I was doing it, so once I wrote it, it all kind of made sense. It, I'm not saying it's something I already know already, but you know when you've kind of got a feeling. So when I wrote about the enteral feeding and dementia, we know what that is quite well known. We don't tube feed people with advanced dementia. So that kind of, mm-hmm. it, it set that in stone. And it's nice to actually look at the research. And because we knew, I knew that as a dietitian, but I'd not actually sat and looked at the research. So it was nice to kind of consolidate um, and and solidify that. And then obviously there was some work around thickened fluids and um, texture-modified diets. So the thickened fluids, and again, we know as dietitians, it can reduce people's quality of life and the compliance of it. And again, this is what the research did show. And the research did also show that thickened fluids don't always reduce the risk of aspiration because it can cause residue in the pharynx, which if people can't clear it, it's sat there. And it's right on your airway, ready to be kind of aspirated or penetrated. So the, there were lots of things that I learned thinking, well, actually, this is quite thought provoking. And you really need to, this is why you need this holistic assessment. If you are going to put something on thick and fluids, are you sure it's the right thing to do? Does that make sense? Because obviously, because of the risks of it being kind of a lot thicker. And obviously, with the texture modified diets, people's quality of life can reduce and obviously there's weight loss and things like that and this is where I'm thinking well this is where we fit in because if we've got somebody on a texture modified diet we need to really intervene and kind of help them because I don't know about you but it's very rare you'd find somebody on a level four diet who's kind of eating really great and they're having lots of you know the the maintaining the weight and things like that because it does come with its difficulties doesn't it so and it might be the safest for that person and again is risk feeding something we need to consider because, you know, it really improves somebody else's quality of life and we can't put a measure on that. Yes, yeah, so I think, and have the speech and, obviously you said you're you're the go-between between some of the dietitians and the speech and language therapists. Yeah. Have the speech and language therapists learned anything sort of, obviously you've learned stuff from their side of the side of the coin, but is it ever, has it gone the other way too? Have they learned anything from, from you or how you maybe view things with a little bit of a years of dietetic experience with a bit of a dietetic hat on? Yeah, so this is something... I definitely want to work on. I think because I've been taking so long finding my feet, um, learning their their profession, after their profession, this is something I want to work on. So I want to work on if the speech therapy team feel like they need to refer, come to me first, let's talk it through. Let's, you know, just again, saving a lot of time kind of documenting and writing referrals. We are um, kind of across all professionals wanting to look at increasing how often people would screen using the muscle and putting action plans in place. So that's not something I've worked on as such. I think they've learned, a lot for me along the way regarding feeding tubes and weight and kind of decisions around what we do for that person. So for example, we had patients who were on the waiting list, so they have feeding tubes. So from a speech therapy perspective, they're low priority because they've got an alternative form of nutrition and hydration. Well, I mean, the waiting lists are quite long. As I said, the referrals have jumped to like 900 from the hundreds. So they'll be waiting quite a long time on the waiting list. And as I said, they were low priority. But I said, but actually, if I've got a 70-year-old chap with a feeding tube who's in a care home and he's on all trials, I want to get that peg out as soon as possible if I can. Because if somebody's left with a peg in place and somebody's had a stroke, there are obviously more chance of developing dementia, which then things get really tricky with regards to the feeding tube. So I said it's really important that when that person comes out of hospital, we get in there and do that rehab with him to see if we can to see if we can get them back onto kind of any form of normal diet and fluids to maybe get the feeding tube out because of the complications it can cause eventually. So they were like, oh, so it's actually quite a high priority for you, isn't it? And I said, yeah. I know they've got an alternative form of nutrition hydration, but actually that don't mean that we can just leave it. We need, we still need to do something with it if we can. So I think that that were kind of a learning point for them, which is why they said it, it would be good if I did take on all those patients with a feeding tube. So they got that kind of, it were quite quick that they got that intervention. Yeah, so those low priority patients for them because of the alternative form of nutrition are actually still getting seen by a dietitian with, extra dysphagia training and hopefully 
who doesn't want to eat quicker? Do you know what I mean? Eating is quite an enjoyable yes. part of life, just from a just from a sort of patient experience perspective. And I I always think eating's a, a fundamental part of our life. It's quite social. Yeah. It's quite it's just important in life. And as dietitians, we we obviously talk about the importance probably a little bit too much, but um, I think I do think for patients it, it means quite a lot. And if we can if we can progress them slightly faster, it definitely improves that patient it experience. Does, definitely, it does. Oh, that's brilliant. It, it's so nice to hear that the the learning has has, has sort of gone both ways, and you've mm-hmm. learned things from speech and language therapists. Also, the course you've been on and having to critically evaluate practice yes. and learning learning the backstory behind why the nice guidance say that feeding in advanced dementia is not appropriate and things like that. It helps to sort of improve your improve yourself as a dietitian, I think, understanding a little bit of that backstory. Definitely. So when we're thinking about your experience in this role, where you've talked a little bit about areas where it's excelled for you, but as as you've developed the practice, have you thought about any other areas of dietetics? Maybe you had experience with it on placement or heard about it from other people where you think that having dual competencies would be really, really helpful. And how do you think it would work in, say, obviously yours is community-based, but there might be sort of acute dietitians listening to this or dietitians in different areas. How how do you think it would work for them? The first thing to do would be to obviously speak with your speech therapy team and your service lead to, to figure out if there is a gap or if there would be a benefit um, to the service for patients around obviously being dysphagia trained. Um, obviously, the neuro rehab where I work at the moment, again, it fits in really well there home enteral feeding as well I think that's definitely got a place for it but again with dysphagia the clinical it's a bit like when we look at diabetes for example we have kind of an idea of a care plan interventions that we're going to do and it's the same with swallowing so if somebody's had a stroke you will you might see very similar um patterns observations in in kind of a, a patient group who's had a stroke but for somebody for example who um, and as I said, in neck cancer, you'd see something completely different. So with enteral feeding, because you might see a variety of conditions, it's making sure that you feel competent in all of those areas and all of those conditions. So there is that as an area that would be quite good. Or uh, I know one of uh, my colleagues who's also dysphagia trained, she works in learning disabilities. So I think it's more service specific. And is there a need for it there? It could technically work in any condition, I guess. Um, but it's just trying to to make sure that it benefits the patient and it, and it benefits the service as well. But yeah, they're just some of the areas I think might be quite nice. It might quite work quite well. Definitely. And, and in, in, in particular with yourself, what's the, what's the future of your, your role? How do you, how do you see it advancing into the future? And, or obviously you've talked about expanding into different areas, but is there any sort of extra work around sort of dysphagia trained dietitians that you would, you would love to see in the future? It could be something you're working on at the moment or something you, see as a possibility yeah I think because it's quite a new role and as I said I have got a colleague but she works in learning disabilities so again very different um from like a a swallowing uh, perspective Mm. um I'm not I'm really not sure because I feel like we've not really because we've not done it before we don't know what the future holds I know I am just enjoying seeing patients and I'm enjoying kind of learning and progressing and um trying to see what kind of differences we can make but no it's really hard to say because I, I just don't know it is it's it's difficult because you don't know what you don't know, do you really? So we'll have to see how it goes. And obviously in Doncaster we've done a lot of projects, we've done a lot of innovative work in other areas of dietetics. So I'm hoping we can kind of continue that um, in this area as well. So yeah, I'm just hoping to increase my increase my knowledge and my skills in the conditions and we'll just see where it takes us. But yeah, unfortunately there's no things like KPIs or anything like that to go off really. We're kind of just a bit uh, one thing I did want to do is kind of set up maybe like a dietitians do dysphagia whether it's like a facebook group people are interested or i don't know obviously because i'm i feel like i'm the only one if there is any out there please obviously if you're listening to this podcast please get in touch if i'm not aware um, of somebody else as i said i know i've got one colleague um but yeah i'd like to you know it'd be really good if it's something that we can do and just uh, branching the, the two professions together because we do work really closely together anyway so it'd be great if we could if we could continue that um, um because as I said we do we do a bit like OT and physio kind of go together a little bit you've got uh, speech therapy and dietetics so it'd be nice just to continue that kind of interprofessional working yeah what about the speech and language maybe taking over some of the um sort of 
care for sort of nutrition support and speeding up that care? Mm-hmm. Is there any talk about that within your within your team or within your service? This is something I, I do want to work on. Um, so obviously, what we we could be asking them to do is kind of screen for malnutrition. So obviously giving them a muscle and putting a nutritional action plan in place. And then if that's not working, for example, if they're still losing weight or they're still having difficulties, then obviously they can refer. So doing that little bit of first line advice, which all district nurses also do as yeah, well. We know that anyone on a texture modified diet is at high risk of uh, higher risk of malnutrition. So why, why should we not screen those patients more regularly to catch malnutrition so it's more easily resolved quicker. I think that's a really good, um, useful way for them to do it and to put in a, a action plan in place. Mm-hmm. See if to it actually works. almost yeah. See if that works mm-hmm. and and treat that malnutrition. Um, I think that would be really helpful. Yeah, we've also I came across when we're doing um, assessments, there would be so it's a right so level four. So we'd have the diet sheets that were level four that speech therapy developed, and I looked at them, and with no offense to my colleagues. There were things on there, and I think one of the examples that stuck out the most to me was meat options, quiche. And I, 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 I were like, no, I, I, that's really not that's really not a meat option. I was like, we need to – and the, the suggestions on there, as, as hard as they will have tried, it were the randomest things, things like avocado, as I said, quiche. And I was like, right, we need to make some diet sheets that if somebody is put onto a level four diet, they know how to have a balanced diet. They know how to enrich it if they need to enrich it. So what I've done recently is I've worked with the lead and we've developed some leaflets in line with IDSI. Um, so we've got one for level four right up to level seven, easy chew. And in it, it's really uh, robust around, well, these are carbohydrates, these are proteins. So it is more, it's not a healthy eating leaflet. It's more around you still need to have these food groups, even if you are on a level four diet. So don't just live off things like yogurts and things like that. So I have developed those leaflets, which I think I think will be really helpful. And that might, again, that might help with that first line information. So if somebody has changed onto a level four diet, they still know what they can eat because a lot of patients will come to us and say, as dietitians, and say, well, I'm on a level four diet, what can I eat? And as we know, while we're on the phone or while we're talking to him, we can't think of things up top of his head. So it's it's really good now that we've got these leaflets that we can obviously give out and it, it kind of explains everything they need to know about the level whilst also um, eating everything that they need to eat. So, yeah. And it also probably helps the compliance as well. I mean, if the if the diet seems a little bit easier to follow and less less restrictive and allows them to feel well-nourished and feel satisfied, yes. then I know that, for example, I would I wouldn't feel pretty happy with just quiche as my meat option. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, adding that adding that dietetic knowledge along with their extensive experience with dysphagia, yes. managing patients, and managing sorts of risks. I think with all of these extended roles, I think one of the things that really stands out is the collaboration. Yeah. So, for example, I've interviewed um, uh, dietitian Sam before, who places NG mm-hmm. tubes, and there's other dietitians working in sort of placing bedside NJ tubes in the acute setting. Yeah. And obviously you're working with dysphagia. And it never seems to be a case of, oh, we've, they've come in and they've replaced somebody's role. Yeah. It's always like they they supplement it, they provide support, they provide extra training, they provide they fill a gap that wasn't already filled. And it almost enhances the the collaboration between them. So for example, NG placement and sort of nutrition nurses. The nutrition nurses are still still um very busy in that um, in that setting, but um, it just helps to provide. It helps to be almost like an extra pair of eyes and ears for them as well. Yeah, and I think that really really works well for. I mean, speech and language therapists, but obviously, as we extend roles, it'd be great to have physiotherapists, occupational therapists, speech and language therapists, almost screening for must and putting an action plan in place before a dietitian could even get there. I think all of those AHPs, as as well as nurses would be perfect place to do that we can't see everybody can we like you said it's 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 and and thing is if they do get to us they're pretty in dire straits at that point because they've 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 been at risk for so long so like you said anybody that can get in and and do that kind of and just that first line advice it's what we would provide Mm -hmm. anyway into kind of food fortification snacks and drinks so yeah it, it is the same and i think from a what the speech therapists do also appreciate is because I'm a dietitian, I'm coming from a different background. I see things in a different way. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about patients, it's, it is a different perspective because unlike us dietitians, we get very involved in what we do and we're very, we're not short-sighted, but obviously we think as dietitians. So, you know, for, for me to go in there and say, well, actually we thought about this and we thought about that. 
the speech therapist are like, oh yeah, actually that's a you know it's a good point. Let's you know so it's it's good to have two heads. Two heads are always better than one. Definitely, yeah, two heads are better than one. And so, do you have any interesting experience sort of with patients or um, maybe a, a, a case study that's that's really exemplified mm-hmm. how how this works well together? Um, so I think my favourite one, because um, obviously they always stick out to you, don't they? And, and patients, you always remember certain patients. So I did, I kind of I almost, I referred to it um, before. So we had a fairly new patient who had been admitted from the acute hospital into uh, a care home. He'd had a stroke and he was discharged on eight teaspoons of level three or level four. So obviously that could be um, diet or fluid um, six times a day. And the care home kept ringing and they were like, he really wants to eat more. Like he's looking at everybody else's food. Like he's really sad. Like, I think he'll be fine. Like, please, can you come and see us? Um, so I was like, right. Yeah. Okay. Obviously he was my peg patient as well because he's got a feeding tube in place. So when I went out to see him on the first assessment, I were able to up him to kind of no limit of level three and no limit of level four. So obviously before he were on the, the teaspoons, but he were able to manage unlimited amounts. And then from that point, I think he won a bolus feeding regime. From that point, he did not need any enteral feed or fluid at all because of the amount he ate and he wanted to eat. Like for us, level three and level four is still quite restrictive. We're thinking it's still quite modified that how would somebody meet the full nutrition and hydration needs without the use of a peg? But this chap did because he was so eager. So it massively improved his quality of life. He was so happy. And then on the second assessment, what I would do normally is, and it is partially for my learning and for the patient's benefit, is if I make a change, so we had level three fluids, we had level four diet. I only changed and assessed the diet at that point. So if anything, if he does have any adverse signs, we're quite clear on what caused the problem. If you change fluids and diets together, could it have been the fluid that caused it? You know, if, if he starts coughing and, and choking and things like that and the care and report it to you as well, because if documentation is not great and communication, sometimes, you know, it gets missed on what the problem was. So I went and I assessed a diet and he went from level four diet right up to normal diet. So it were, in, in the second assessment, it were on level three fluids and it were on normal diet. And I left it about two or three weeks to obviously check that he managed that okay. Went back after three weeks, he put on 10 kilos. <laughs> He'd been having double meals. Um, and then obviously the third time I went, we assessed his fluids and we could only get him up to level two. Um, sorry, we could only you know reduce his thickness down to level two. Um, but he was still quite happy with that. So, you know, another another couple of weeks and we'll be referring for his, his feeding tube out. So for me, he's really chuffed. He's eating double meals and double puddings. And you know, like you said, eating and drinking is so important. It is what we think about. It's what we try and control. It's it's everything in table. It is to us. I don't know about other professions, yeah. but it's um, it's definitely really important. So for me, that really stuck out um, as being kind of a little mini success story. From like yeah. a KPI thing, you've definitely improved <laughs> the patient experience there. Yeah, yeah, De- sure. definitely. Yeah. And also the time of intervention is probably shorter, probably That's for awesome. both yeah. dietetics and speech and language therapy as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you already know that you're planning to get his feeding tube out. You don't need a referral to be sent and then it to be triaged and then it to go through all the systems. You already know about that. And I know in a lot of community settings, obviously contracts vary and they're all, all secretive, but um, feed costs more than food. I think it usually costs more than food, like supplements and all the Mm -hmm. equipment that's needed, all the extra care that's needed. All those things cost extra money and time from, nursing staff and by actually reducing the amount of feed that he's on yeah not only does it improve his quality of life it also reduces costs as well which yeah. i think is definitely a, a multiple performance indicators there that yeah. i would i would look at for that sort of thing but yeah that's a that's a i imagine he's really chuffed he is he's, he's and he's such a lovely chap as well um yeah no it's it's brilliant and i did the same in an impatience as well so I assessed um, a chap who'd had a, um, a brain injury. It was 12th of August and it were on three teaspoons of milk three times a day. Very random, but he'd only have milk. He wouldn't have anything else. And then by the 2nd of September, um, it, were on, it were on full amount of normal fluids and it were on level six, soft and bite size. By 18th of September, we were on nil via peg and it were having his peg out. It was um, on having a referral hopefully, to have his peg removed. So we were on that trial. So within six weeks, it had gone from basically being nil by mouth to being able to eat and drink 
um, and not have to use his feeding tube. So, yeah, like you said, it's it's quicker for me. Our interventions and the time is under our care is quicker because we're normally sat waiting for speech therapy to go and do the assessment so we can do our bit, whereas now it's it's much quicker, like you said, from both sides. Yeah, and I always think, I'm always thinking about the patient, but like you said, it does have that knock-on effect because caring for a feeding tube like I said it comes with a, it's, it comes with a lot of cost you know it even it impacts on things like continuing health care and placements that people have if people mm-hmm. have a feeding tube they have to have a certain placement where that can be cared for so it, it does make a massive impact to things like discharge locations um, and things like that so yeah there's yeah it does it does benefit a lot of a lot of professionals um, whether they know it or not. <laughs> that is a, a brilliant story and I think it definitely is Definitely improvements in patient care are the fundamentals, but then the extras just add um, icing onto the cake, but also (laughs) justify the extra extra cost of the dysphagia trainings. What sort of, if you don't mind me asking, what sort of cost do they, what's the kind of ballpark that these sort of trainings come at? Maybe not the, you don't need to say the particular one, but what sort of prices are we looking at? I think, and I could be completely wrong, but I'm sure it were about, 900 pound i wouldn't i wouldn't like to say for sure but it's it's around it's is around that price but I, I don't think price really came into it only because it's such a normal thing that once a speech therapist have graduated then they go to the they obviously start working for a trust and then the trust will send them on that course it's a bit like it's and it is obviously it's a 30 30 credit master's module um it is just something that they just do they just kind of because they, they expect all speech and language therapists do basically need to be disaster trained they might not work in that area and that's obviously different for example if they work in a school it might just be communication but um as i said most speech therapists are obviously trained in dysphagia as well so um yeah i don't think costs were i don't think it were, were too important and like you said i think we probably just need to sit and um work out what this has actually saved would be good wouldn't it to do that yeah, i can imagine it's probably there's that patient experience would definitely be a, an area where i think would be the bigger, I think that that's one of the biggest things, and I think everyone yeah. would acknowledge that. And I think it's not a hard thing to grasp that. Obviously, eating is nice. I mean, yes. and it improves people's improves people's lives. Do you have anything else you want to say in regards to dysphagia or this particular from start to finish? What's been the biggest hurdle or barrier that you've encountered to actually implementing this dysphagia training into practice, or even the training itself? I would say. Um... The biggest hurdle was was the training itself. I think it's it what really was a difficult course because because I didn't have the speech therapy background and the speech therapists who go to the course they have like three to four years of that underpinning knowledge of all the um, muscle culture for the the communication the swallow they've got all that etiology, whereas I didn't have that so that was a massive massive learning curve for me and there's such a variety of etiology and different patients and things like that it, it was it was really difficult I mean some my supervisor determined that some speech therapists don't actually pass first time so the, the fact that I did pass I think is quite an achievement in itself and I think because as I said it's very subjective and there's lots of gray areas and it could be this and it could be that it doesn't sit well for somebody who likes things in order and a bit OCD and likes to make sure right we know what we're doing and this is it and this is this we're a bit like oh it could be this it could be that so it's it's made me be a lot more flexible it has made me a much better practitioner uh, but yeah, I would I would say it's the actual doing it. I've had amazing support from my team. They're just the fabulous from the dietetic perspective and obviously the speech therapy team. Actually doing it, um, seeing patients, um, getting up my competency, all that was it. It was it was fun. It was really difficult. And then you get to a point. It's a bit like I assume um, everybody as we've gone through our studies, being a student dietitian, you wake up one day or you see that one patient and you think, yeah. I get it now. I understand what I'm doing. You, you just have that light bulb moment where you think it all kind of makes sense. And now I'm kind of getting to that point, And this is kind of two years down the line with the dysphagia. So I feel like it just takes a lot longer. And I think it's because I don't, I didn't have the background that the speech therapists do, but the actual training and working in this area, um, there's not really been any barriers. And I said, it's because of the amazing support I've had from my managers and from the team. And that's really fundamental because it is, quite a lonely thing to do especially as you're the only dietitian who's dysphagia trained so you do feel a bit like a bit of an outsider in your own mind even though it weren't like that at all um so yeah it's it's important to get the support from everybody but no it's been a, it's been a really good experience um and i definitely think we should have more dysphagia trained dietitians i think this is this is the future it's the way forward yeah i mean it's definitely part of um i can't remember exactly which nhs sort of wider structured document i think it's ahps in action or something yes. about yeah, sort yeah. Of using the workforce we already have 
expanding mm-hmm. roles, thinking of ways we can work more collaboratively together. And I do think that's probably one of the fundamentals of teamwork. And if you think about lots of team sports, you'll have people with assigned roles, such as strikers, defenders and stuff. Yeah. But if a yeah. defender scores a goal, no one's going to go, whoa, what, what are you doing? You're meant to be <laughs> yeah. defense, mate. Um, yeah. However, but if they, for example, if a defender tries to score a goal, but maybe lacks his fundamental skills of protecting the goal, people yes. might say, actually, you know what, you shouldn't have been scoring that goal in the first place. So it is, I think, what's been gone through. It's, it's definitely some of these skills are quite advanced skills. Mm-hmm. And it's important to make sure we've got that underpinning of dietetic knowledge and dietetic experience before we try yes. to yeah. extend into other roles or do other things. Yeah, we definitely um, agree. I think you have to feel confident in your role because it is, it is a huge jump. I mean, it's a master's anyway, so I was never quite interested in doing um, anything other than undergraduate. I was quite happy. I, I learned better from experience than kind of academic work. So the fact that it was a master's, that in itself, it just kind of it shows how how hard it is, but, you know, how challenging it can be. So, yeah, it's really important to, to – I think that's really the point that you've made to keep to make sure that you're confident within your own role before you start branching out and doing other things. Definitely. I think there's probably – uh, there's probably lots of enthusiastic, say, student dietitians out there or newly qualified dietitians that are looking to just jump straight into this area and thinking, I want to do that right yeah. now. And that's that's a wonderful skill to have. Yeah. But also remembering that dietitians are dietitians and yeah. we've got to make sure that we're, we, we can eventually learn to do other jobs on the pitch, but yes. also... Where we are defenders or strikers or, where, or yeah. whatever our position is, first of all, yeah. and then we extend into other roles and and support other professions and things. And I think that that obviously works. So obviously, the more you understand about other people's roles, you can actually work better as a team as well. Yeah. And I think it's relevant in terms of like Euro twenty twenty as well, definitely. So <laughs> good, um, good analogy there. Are there any areas where you think the the combination of having both dietetic knowledge and then that dysphagia training would be helpful in combination yeah so I think obviously the role that I'm in now so in community in care homes will work quite well so obviously um dietetic services in care homes is quite a lot into it and we do get quite a lot of referrals and obviously the different pathways across the country so that would be really good I think acute stroke might be quite good as well um obviously because if a lot of patients do become nil by mouth or if um, they need ng tubes can there be impact made there um, neuro rehab as well obviously I work on neuro rehab at the moment and again patients can come from the acute setting nail by mouth they might have peg tubes in place so again it's quite relevant there home mental feeding would be probably a good one the only thing to consider with that is that there are lots of different conditions um, as we know for people who have ventral feeding tubes so Obviously, if you're working, for example, on neuro rehab and it's brain injury unit, or if you're working on acute stroke and it's stroke, you can focus kind of what observations you might see, what kind of swollen problems you're going to see. Um, the etiology can be quite similar across those patients. Whereas if you've got somebody who's home mentally fed, the, as we know, the condition can really vary. So you've got to feel quite um, confident in each of those conditions. There's also uh, learning disabilities as well. So I've got a colleague who's dysphagia trained who works in learning disabilities. So again, that could be something there. So I think it's more around trying to find if there is a gap um, and kind of seeing, you know, how, or not even a gap, kind of how can we make things better? This would actually make things better um, in this service um, for this team. I think it's going to be very specific depending on where you work and what kind of services are in place. Um, so it's definitely worth going to speak to either um, your manager or your speech therapy team and, and just kind of discuss and see if there's anything that, like you said, if there's a gap, that would be great. But again, even if you can improve patient care, that would. Um, it, it works both ways, really. Yeah. So now for some rapid fire questions. So, do you have any advice for newly qualified dietitians uh, starting off, just fresh in their career? Well, I would I would say always be yourself. Um, find out what you like, um, and obviously that that can help on placement. You can kind of some people already know from placement experience. Um, become confident in what in what area you like to work in, and then if this is obviously a dysphagia, something you want to go into then you can you can tie that in so once you feel happy and comfortable in your role it can be something you can think of kind of advanced practice and as well I'd always say and it's not quite related to the dysphagia but if you feel like there's something that's not quite right in your service or in your team then please speak up um I'm also a freedom to speak up advocate um and there should be one in every in every trust so I think that's um really important to mention um because obviously sometimes we can work in services and because we've always done it that way don't mean it's quite right 
um, or it's, it's as effective as it could be. So, yeah, always be yourself, always speak up and obviously, um, yeah, and, and find something that you really like and, and go with it. And what is the most challenging thing about being a community dietitian? I would say it's, and I'm only comparing it to the acute setting, I think it's the lack of um, that MDT at your fingertips. So it's much more difficult to obviously we've got GPs, we've got kind of other community staff working in different areas. So trying to pull people together and don't get me wrong, being virtual has helped with that quite a lot because, again, you can just be available on a Teams meeting rather than having to go somewhere. Um, but, yeah, I would just say it's it's the lack of, of, of having people there and kind of knowing who to speak to. Because if you think if somebody's in community, if they're in one care home, they'll have one GP. If it's another care home, it's another GP. So you have to kind of spread yourself quite thin to kind of make all these contacts and kind of network and things like that. Whereas if you're in a hospital and you work on, I don't know, for example, a respiratory ward, you know who your respiratory team is. So it's it's just that really, I would say. Um, but it's still interesting because you have to learn a lot of skills around kind of how to speak to other professionals, um, socially, kind of things to do with funding and carers. And it's like a completely different world. And it's it's how people live. Um, for the rest of their lives whereas acute setting can obviously be um, just a short period of time so it is a different skill set um but it, it's, it's good to have both a commute and a community if you can if you can get that experience well thank you so much for your time today it's been a pleasure talking to you and i think this area is really of interest to i mean i've talked to about it in a few areas and it always generates discussion and i think it's definitely an area where a lot of dietitians will be keen to explore and how they can support their patients better. Um, but as you said, it's not it's not just a quick fix. And I think with a lot of these extended roles, it's it's definitely a, uh, something that dietitians need to dedicate a lot of time, not just to learn the skill and do mm-hmm. the, the proper competencies, but yes. also develop the experience and the knowledge to be able to do it effectively and well. For sure. So I think all of them, whether it be things like nasogastric feed placement or even as I've discussed on previous podcasts, recommendations around physical activity and things like Mm -hmm. that. It all requires experience, implementation and practice to be able to become better at it. Of course. And if anybody who is listening does want to get in touch and wants to know a bit more, I'm more than happy um, to be emailed or to have a phone call, whatever. Um, Like I said, it's just getting it out there, isn't it? And the details for Laura's uh, Twitter handle will be in the show notes if anyone's interested in getting in contact with her. I think that's probably the best way to get in contact yeah. with you. Or yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that'll be fine. Yeah, that'll be great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Dietetics Digest podcast. To share your thoughts on today's episode, please visit our social media. Our main channels are Instagram and Twitter. Also, if you enjoyed the podcast, why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or a podcast host of your choice? Or consider telling a friend about the podcast. Finally, make sure that you subscribe and follow the podcast so that you can stay up to date with our latest episodes.